two-thirds of the people currently working for you, whoever you are out there, two-thirds of them do not intend to be with you within five years. They are just passing through. Welcome to Improv is No Joke podcast, where it's all about becoming a more effective communicator by embracing the principles of improvisation. I am your host, Peter Margaritas, the self-proclaimed chief edutainment officer of my business, The Accidental Accountant. My goal is to provide you with thought-provoking interviews with business leaders so you can become an effective improviser, which will lead to building stronger relationships with clients, customers, colleagues, and even your family. So let's start the show. Welcome to episode number five of Improv is No Joke podcast. Peter Margaritas here, and thank you very much for listening today. I greatly appreciate it. My guest today is Carl Ulrichs, who possesses a significant experience in a wide range of business roles, but first and foremost, is a human resource consultant at Gregory & Appel Insurance Company in Indianapolis, Indiana. In addition, he's one of the Business Learning Institute's top thought leaders and an all-around great guy. Before we get to Carl's interview, let me take care of some housekeeping items. First, I need to address my voice. A few days ago, a Greek family, the bronchitises, moved into my lungs. I've served them with an eviction notice, and most of the family have left. However, a few cousins and a yaya appear to have called their attorney to review the eviction notice. I'm sure this will all be rectified sooner than later. I hope you're enjoying this podcast, and I'd greatly appreciate it if you would write a review on iTunes. It would help the podcast gain exposure to a larger audience, and I thank you for your support. Also, if you haven't signed up for the SN Challenge, please go to my website, petermargaritas.com, and scroll down to the SN Challenge. Click to register to begin this journey of transformation. And remember to share your experiences on Twitter using the hashtag YesAndChallenge or on the Accidental Accountant's Facebook page. I would like to share with you various articles and videos that I come across as it relates to improvisation. This week's article is one that I wrote last year titled, Improv Your Way to Success in the Workplace with These Five Simple Tips. In an overview of these five tips, they are, replace negative yes but with successful yes and. Number two, listen to understand. Number three, focus on relationships. Number four, make mistakes. And finally, number five, commit. If you'd like to read this article or any other articles that I have written, please go to petermargaritas.com forward slash resources. Now let's talk about Carl. His passion and career have taken him across the country and back again. He's run a career center in the swamps of Lake Charles, Louisiana, and another in Appalachia, and helped to restructure Apple in Silicon Valley. He has directed videos in Chicago, marketed software in Orlando, and launched an office of right management consultants in San Diego. Presenting complex subjects to tough audiences has been a specialty of Carl's for decades. He tailors his engaging presentations to the diverse audiences to which he presents. As entertaining as he is knowledgeable, Carl is in demand as a keynote presenter at conferences and organizational events and a trainer in the adult learning model. Carl has acted as the conference chair for the Society for Human Resource Management and presented at six 
No, take that back. Seven consecutive national SHRM conferences. As a senior professional in human resources, Carl is qualified to administer many assessment tools and has a strong background in hiring, training, communications, and writing. As you'll hear in our interview, Carl can explain the Affordable Health Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare, in 30 seconds. So let's get to the interview. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I'm extremely excited today, as I always am when I get to uh, uh, do interview someone for this podcast. But today I'm interviewing a good friend of mine, Carl Ulrich. And first and foremost, Carl, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. I greatly appreciate you um, parting your wisdom to my audience on this podcast. No problem. It's a lot easier to tell other people how to live their lives than do a better job of living my own. <laughs> well said, my friend. Well said. Prior to us getting started, we were talking about some themes that we were going to discuss. And Carl wanted to start off with scary trends, ethics, and uncommon senses. Can you help us with that? Let's, yeah, let's start with the end of that. Uncommon sense. Everybody thinks they want common sense, but if you look it up, it's Basically, the commonly held beliefs of a group or society are called common sense. Well, they aren't working. So <laughs> we need to go to the next step, which I've decided to call uncommon sense. And what is that next step? <sighs> Paying attention to a couple of storm clouds that are on the horizon. If you can be ahead of your class by one page, they consider you the expert. And in modern times, we're all fighting to be a page ahead. So I wanted to point out a couple of trends and understand I am a human resources person, a human capital person who is bilingual with finance and the finance profession. I go into rooms of chief financial officers and explain human capital to them. Then I flip it and go into rooms full of human resources professionals and explain finance to them. I actually use the same slide deck. I just run it backwards. Just run it back. <laughs> of <That's> course. Right. <laughs> and well, you, you're able to make that connection between really left brain people and right brain people, which is a, which is a gift. Well, I'm in the middle. I'm an ambivert. You know, there's an introverts and extroverts. I'm an ambivert. That, that sounded like you said ambivert, which means you take. <laughs> I'm not on drugs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so tell us about some of these storm clouds that you see on the horizon. We've got a perfect storm. Peter, how's the economy? I say it's getting better. It's better than it, it was is. some years ago. Is that a problem? Yes. Okay, thank uh, you. We've got, I, uh, to speed things up here, I'll answer all my rhetorical questions. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> um, our <laughs> per capita productivity is huge. Uh, of the last 16 quarters, I think 13 have been growth quarters measured by GDP. And it's causing a rumble in a couple of areas. One is that the boomers who delayed retirement because of the crash of 2008 and their 401ks became 201ks. Or just Ks. Yeah. Um, stock markets back up. And so they are itching to get to a beach with a, a beverage, and they have not told their employers this. Second, we've got the issue of high performers who 
Normally, high performers are a fairly mobile group. After the crash in 2008, they kind of hunkered down in place and gripped their chairs and were working scared, which always drives productivity up for a while. And we're, we're to the point where that's stopping, and the growth of productivity, I mean. And also, we're getting where the high performers are sticking their heads out of the foxholes and looking around for their next move. So if you're a CPA firm, if you're a finance department, you should expect a significant migration of people in the next 18 months. And you have a choice. They can migrate to you or they can migrate from you. The migration is going to happen. And high performers like to work with high performers in an entrepreneurial environment. And you have probably till the end of 2016 to figure out your management style so that you can attract them. We've also got the fact, you know, question, are your high performers on LinkedIn? Sure. Of course they are. In 2008, LinkedIn wasn't nearly the power that it is now. So here's how it's going to play out. Your high quality person who you have been giving free reign and not interacting with them much because you don't want to micromanage them, they're sitting at home on a Sunday night watching, uh, binge watching something and up pops a LinkedIn invitation for a job for someone else. And they like you, they like working for you, but you haven't really talked to them in 18 months because you've been of the mistaken opinion that high performers don't want to be bugged. No, they want to be challenged. They want to be given stretch assignments. They want a good relationship with a boss they respect. So, you know, the their departure will surprise you. Weren't you happy here? Yeah, but it was more than that. And so they'll always just roll their eyes and tell you it was the money mm -hmm. when it's not the money. Overlaying this, we've got a few generational things. And so I've got that basic um, scary foundation set. Let me drill into one of the interesting topics that's somewhat driving this. Okay, before we get into that topic, sure. you, you mentioned something about LinkedIn. Yep. And LinkedIn has just recently launched LinkedIn ProFinder. Have you yep. heard? Have you heard about this? Oh sure, they've tried to sell it to me, and it's a it's a free service right now that's out there. But it's really about um, entrepreneurship. It's about hey, I need who can give me some legal advice? Who can do some coaching for me? Right. They ha they haven't monetized it yet, but it's a oh, way. They will. Oh yeah, they will. They're, they're very uh, upfront about it, but it's a it's another plat yeah. platform that entrepreneurs to go to to seek uh, assignments. Right. Also, understand that LinkedIn's core business model and cash flow source is not from the advertisement, but is from selling direct access to the database to recruiters. So they are, first and foremost, a tool for professional recruiters to use to get at your best people. Mm-hmm. I just be aware of it. That's that's where their core business model is and was and will come for. Also understand that um, I'm occasionally teaching courses on career transition 
And the question has come up several times, why are we even doing resumes? <laughs> and I say, well, the resume, there's, there's, it's a good way to get you focused. And then the contents of the resume get copied and pasted into your LinkedIn profile. And so and then with the LinkedIn profile, we will add some SEO nice stuff. We will add some video clips. We will add to it, make it more of a, a brochure on your on your life and career. But the core of a resume is evolving into a LinkedIn profile. Yeah, my actually my wife who um, was with Macy's for thirty five years retired. She took a year off. She's now trying to uh, look for another job. I said one had to write a resume for the first time in thirty five years. Oh yeah, she's doing outplacement through Lee Hecht Harrison, and she's had to do a resume and also do her LinkedIn profile. Oh, yeah. And it's been an interesting um, uh, uh, watching her and put this all together and learning more about, as you were saying, about the SEOs and, and, and really oh, yeah. LinkedIn is your resume. That's right. And I personally have built a web page. If you type in my name, it's going to pop to carlalrix.com, uh, which will get redirected to one of a couple different pages I have as we, as we emerge into this new world where there's, there's two kinds of people. Now there are digital natives and there are digital immigrants. Dude. It's pretty self-explanatory, and it is not age-specific. There are. I work with a guy who's in his 30s who is hoping he never has to learn another cell phone beyond his BlackBerry. <laughs> um, okay. I've worked with 70-year-olds who have their wireless Bluetooth hearing aids tied to their iPhone with the frequency response charts for their hearing aids on their Apple Watch. Nice. And this, I said, what's next? He said, I want my pacemaker controls on my watch too. <laughs> so, I mean, one thing about the generations, take it with a grain of salt. And second, start looking for other ways to divide the world. And I think a good way to look at it are digital natives versus digital immigrants. Because that's the world we play in. We need to be working with people who line up with their jobs. Someone who's a digital immigrant needs to have a job that doesn't need a lot of digital interaction. They're out there. You just need to know where to look. Right. right. All right. Back. Okay. Uh, quick pop. Quick pop quiz. I want to. I want to <laughs> test our audience. Uh, everybody out there in Radio Land, have you checked your phone already in, while I've been talking? Do you Google for information twenty times a day? Do you use your mobile phone for more than ten things? Ten apps. Here's a key one. Have you turned over remembering to technology? The more of these you say yes, the more you are a millennial. And understand that with the recent data, um, it's kind of funny. Gen X is probably the most important generation because they're the ones on deck to take over management roles. Right. But no one will talk about them, first, because they're somewhat quiet, and second, because millennials are now the largest generation in the workforce. That's new this year. Uh, Gen Xers had two and a half years in the sun where they were the largest. Uh, millennials have taken over. Sorry about that. They're the most diverse population ever, but the interesting statistic that is the scary thing on the horizon, um, Deloitte did a survey just released where they asked 
for future employment trends with the millennials. Two-thirds of the people currently working for you, whoever you are out there, two-thirds of them do not intend to be with you within five years. They are just passing through. Okay. This, this changes everything. This changes how we train. This changes how we manage. Because we can't threaten them to make them boomers. We have to adapt the very work we do to fit a more project thinking pattern, project uh, employment lifestyle, where their possibility of returning to you in three years is actually pretty good if you were a good place to work. But they're going to come back with more skills, so you will have to pay them more. That's just part of the part of the equation. But that fits the business plan. That's okay. But job hopping is going to be rampant, and it's going to be systemic, and it's just how we're going to do work. Good news. It means your organization can be very flexible. Bad news. It means your training and management styles need to change. Well, uh, can't... What, what, what could stop this um, revolving door that if an organization wants to say, you know what, I, I don't want this revolving door here, how do, how do we stop it? How, or how do we slow it down? Okay. Let's agree that high performers want to work with people smarter than themselves. They want to build their, their, uh, their toolkits. They want to work with other high performers. That means. A big key to this is raising our standards on hiring significantly and changing what we hire for so that the high performers you have are pleased and impressed with the quality of the people coming in to work with them. They'll stick around if they're working in an environment they perceive they can't get anywhere else. And if their manager appears to listen to them, <laughs> then they will stay longer because they, they don't get that very often. And they will stay there uh, 10, 20, 30% longer for no improvement in money. This is not a money score. This is a psychological satisfier. Um, I mean, Peter, have you ever worked longer at a job because you either A, had a good boss, or B, a good culture, and that held you, uh, even though the money, you could get more money across the street. Uh, 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 yes. There. Yeah. Thank you for answering correctly. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and I've taken jobs for the wrong reason. I've taken jobs for money and not been a values fit. I knew within two weeks... <laughs> that I'd made a mistake. I knew within and, two days. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I worked for in corporate sponsored outplacement for years. Mm. Uh, I, I, as an HR person, I was, uh, you said your wife's going through Lee Heck, excellent yeah. firm. I was across the street at Wright Management Consultants. Um, I would routinely ask people, I was part of thousands of termination meetings. I would routinely ask people, was this a surprise? No. And then I would ask, if this job wasn't a fit, how long were you here too long? Hmm. Oh, average answer, probably three years. 
wow. So somebody would actually burn off three years of their life because of inertia, because of whatever, because of fear of change. Um, I vowed to never do that. And so when I got into a spot where I knew I wasn't a fit, I started working immediately on my departure and finding a place that aligned with my values. Um, 18 months later, I walked into my boss's office and said, uh, can we date other people and still be friends? <laughs> well, at least you were trying to be still be friends. That's right. And we, and we are. Yeah. I, it's, it's, it's important because of the nature of the business world to always arrive on good terms, be there on good terms, and leave on, on good terms. terms. Exactly. So anyway, uh, let's get back to a couple surprises that I really wanted to cover. Okay. Um, one was that the millennials are over. That if you hire somebody, it's 2016, if you hire somebody who is 21 or younger, they are not a millennial. And each generation has a trigger point that defines the generation. With the boomers, it was the size of their cohort. With the Gen Xers, it's that they were latchkey kids and became adult in high school. With millennials, it's the fact that they were somewhat overparented. With the, let's call this new group, let's call them Gen Wi-Fi, <laughs> um, they were... First, aware. You become aware at about age three. Um, they first became aware um, the year that Google was created. So therefore, they have never known a world where they have to know anything. Because all of the wisdom since Plato is available instantly on their smartphone. Okay, so you've just basically described my son at turning 16 in June of, there you go. of Generation Wi-Fi. Yep. And they, you know, quick, what's the capital of South Dakota? They don't care. Is it, um, is it Bismarck? No. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> it's, it's Pierre. Uh, um, I just picked that one because no one knows it. Or Peter for short. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's all about you. Exactly. Um, here's what really makes them scary. The Josephson Institute of Ethics went in and did uh, confidential surveys on ethics of high school kids. You know, question. Have you cheated on an exam at least once in the past year? It was hitting 60 to 70% yes. Wow. In the real world, people do what they have to do to win, even if others consider it cheating. It's like 55%. Yes. These will be our new hires. So if we agree that they come into the workplace expecting us to become their parents. We are going to have to do the job their parents didn't do on teaching them ethics. Because I don't care what your organization does. If you have workers that are willing to 
oh, it's late and I've got to, I, I'm out of here. And instead of doing a full lab check on all of these chemicals, I'm just going to enter a good number that they probably are. Um, that's an ethical lapse. Uh, I'm not going to leave my workplace clean and ready for the next person. So it's a safety hazard. Safety is an ethical thing. We have ethics as one of the fundamental cornerstones of commerce. And without ethics, our society falls apart. And without trust in each other, our society falls apart. For a variety of reasons, ethics are going to be stretched thin starting, oh, about now. Um, where's this coming from? I'm not sure. Uh, certainly politics plays a role. Certainly sports plays a role. Um, I was a big Lance Armstrong fan. Oh yeah, me too. Um, I does major league baseball condone performance enhancing drugs? Yes or no? They say no. Uh, Yeah, right. Are there (laughs) steroids? Are there steroids users being admitted into the hall of fame? Uh, yes, but we don't know that they were. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Uh, what about deflated balls, footballs? <laughs> you, did, you, you did write an article about ethics and... Uh, well, I couldn't believe... Uh, this. Is, I, I have to tell this story briefly. So there I was. I wish you could have been there. I was the opening speaker at the um, Vermont uh, annual meeting of the Vermont CPA Association. <laughs> two days after the deflate gate sanctions had been announced. Now, if you're in Vermont, who are you cheering for in the National Football League? Uh, good. Patriots. There were some Buffalo people in the audience, but mostly it was a Patriots crowd and they were cranky. <laughs> um, my name tag read Indianapolis, which is where I live. And so I decided to go straight to the heart of the matter and trigger an <laughs> ethics discussion. So my first slide up on the screen was of a young, it's like an engagement picture, a young couple in happy embrace, smiling towards the camera. And they were both wearing Tom Brady jerseys. And I, my opening statement was, you know, welcome. Moment of advice before we get started. When you marry, marry a Patriots fan because they don't mind if you cheat. <laughs> oh, oh, we were off and running. And, you know, it's interesting. Everybody has a hot button on, on ethics. I never, I never break any rules. Okay, tell me about your driving. Yeah. Speed limit 65. What do you drive? 75. Oh, everybody <laughs> does that. So ethics is an art. We just have here's, – here's my point on this coming – um storm cloud as their employers i'm talking hr here mm-hmm. we need to include in the, the the core culture of the company the material that re- attracts someone to our firm the onboarding that happens once they join our firm All of that has to have an undercurrent of high ethical standards. What does it look like? What are the, give me some case studies. We need to be able to teach people ethics and continually teach people ethics. Uh, If you've ever worked in manufacturing, 
every shift of good organizations starts with a shift meeting. At the shift meeting, it starts with a safety moment where someone tells a safety story, someone does a safety briefing. But safety is the common topic in manufacturing and has been for decades. We need to do that same thing with ethics inside our organizations, where a manager's meeting will begin with an an ethics moment, where onboarding begins with a quick chart of, this is our ethical standard. Not only is it good, you know, just good for commerce, but remember we were talking about high performers earlier. Right. They love working in an ethical environment. And low performers hate an ethical environment. So I guess one of my key points is if you really want to get ahead of this coming ethics storm, uh, bake it into everything you do and make integrity a part of the screening for new hires. You know, build in a question. At work, can you give me an example of a time that someone around you acted unethically? And what did you do? Or what did you learn from it? You know, let's really have this as part of the conversation and right up front so people understand what's going on. Uh, I, I, I agree with that. Uh, if you want to have an ethical environment and you want to, you know, uh, Enron had a code of conduct. They try to create on paper an ethical environment, but they never walk the talk. So the tone comes from the top, and I love the idea of starting meetings with an ethical conversation. Yep. I don't. I think I, I. I don't know if we can teach people ethics, but we can talk oh, about. Yes. Oh yes, we can. I I, I I tend to think that that was taught at a young age, but we can bring them into different type of ethical situations as they, and I guess as a learning, and, and so they can contemplate their personal stance yeah. versus what's going on. Sure. Uh, and, and, trying to, and trying to change that behavior. Two things. First off, understand in the human condition, we go through three basic stages in the development of our personal ethical standards. When we're kids, we do the right thing to avoid punishment or to gain a re, or, or to gain a reward. When we get to young adulthood, we join a group and we share a common ethical standard, and so we're watching the ethics of others and mimicking them. And so the group will will drive the ethics. It's kind of mob behavior on ethics. Mm-hmm. Either doing something good, like after a, a tornado blows through, everybody in the community goes into an abandoned convenience store where it's unlocked and they shop and leave their cash on the counter. Um, that was documented after Hurricane Katrina in, in small towns. Um, then there's the final stage where you have your own ethical standards, which you stick to no matter what's happening around you. Case in point is if you've ever served on a jury, there was someone in the room who was making decisions to their own standard. That's why we have juries. That's great. That's why some, you know, if it's a really capital offense, we have to have unanimity because if there's one person in the room who will not do it, fine. That's our society functioning. But that's someone who is adult having their own ethical standards. And what we're trying to do is get people up to those standards. 
Without it, we're going to see we're going to see a surge in embezzlements. We're going to see a surge in bad decisions. Um, you know, this is this is what we have to protect in our society. Okay. I mean, if if you're trying to teach somebody this, give them a list of a half a dozen things that could be great aspirations: wealth, fame, knowledge, integrity, popularity. Okay, and say pick one. Just you can only pick one of these. But when they're writing your eulogy, this is what you will be known for. If they pick anything except integrity, there will be many times in their lives that they give up integrity to get the other thing. Right. Yeah, I agree. They need to be aware of this. What drives it? Greed for money. Yeah, greed. I, I... Yeah, but we need to be comfortable. Giving people case studies, give me an example of a time. You know, you find a wallet on the street. What do you do? Um, you're in a grocery store, and there's a lady standing in the corner of the deli section opening and eating cheese food sticks like nobody's business. She's clearly not going to pay for them. What right. do you do? Right. Well, imperative principle says I turn her in because that's stealing. Okay. Now she reveals that she's pregnant and homeless and she doesn't want her child to get the same start she did. Now what do you do? Oh, that's more difficult. Exactly. That's why we have to get people square on steps in ethical decision-making before they're faced with a tough challenge. Okay. So I just, what would you do in that situation? You witness this person eating oh, I'd cheese? Buy her, I'd, buy her, I'd buy her some cheese sticks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's there's this gen, it, on one hand, I love it. On one hand, <laughs> I feel like I feel like uh, Tevye and, and Fiddler. On one hand, uh, the imperative principle is, you know, do what is according to absolute moral rules. You know, this is like when judges got the uh, sentencing tables and could not deviate from them. And then there is the utilitarian principle. Do what produces the greatest good. And this is very situational. But this is why it's the art of ethics, not the science of ethics. You know, we need to have people. Remember I said there were three stages right. where, okay, people have to have developed their adult sense of ethics so they apply the correct principle at the correct time. Um. You know that that they they have they have tools in their toolbox. Um, you know, you, let's oh, case in point, Peter. You're running a firm, and one of your best, uh, just data entry worker bees. This is one of your best ones. Turns out, does not have a full four year degree as claimed on her resume when you hired her six years ago. Doesn't have it. Got a two-year degree. She lied on her application form. That is a fireable offense. What do you do? I fire. I would say this is one of your best people. Okay? This is where you could also consider sitting her down and saying, listen, what you did, do, do you agree what you did was wrong? Are you willing to get the degree starting now and and complete what you said you didn't have? Because her six years of excellent performance and great behavior and being a part of the team does earn her something, does it not? Yes, 
And, and? she lied. <laughs> yes, and she, she lied. So maybe I need to go back and look at past performance, and maybe I was not seeing everything yeah. clearly. Uh, and do see how tough back. this is. Yeah. See oh. how tough this is. This is not simple. Uh, it also means that we need to be really aggressive in our screening of people on the on the way in. This circles back to something I said a little while ago. We need to get better at our hiring process. You right. know, if you've asked, you know, I made my case of what's going wrong. Well, what can we do to fix it? We can become better managers. We can become better listeners. We can hire for values and train them in the skills. And we can really be a good ethical example. As one of my podcast interviews, Karen Young uh, said, hire slow, fire fast. Take the time to make sure we're bringing, and and her example was, first thing she asked an applicant is to go look at their core values, mission statement, vision statement. And then the first conversation they have is, how do you fit into this environment? How do you feel fit into these core competencies? And then based off of that decision, or or based off of that conversation, comes the next, well, either you're going to get an application or you're not. You're not a good fit, and she said her yeah. hi- her hiring um, uh, practices have gotten a thousand percent better by flipping it that way. Versus, you don't see the mission, vision, the core competencies until maybe you're signing your paperwork on day one. I agree with two things. Well, I agree with one thing and disagree with another. I agree with the higher standards. I disagree that you never have anything over a hundred percent. So there. Mm. Well, you know, oh, you never have anything over a hundred percent. But well, it's got, you just said a thousand percent, smarty pants. Did so I say I gotcha. th- did I say a thousand? Yes, you did. Roll up, back your tape up, and you are busted. I'm busted. Okay. I paid. I paid attention in statistics class. Clearly, can you spell uh, statistics? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, what else are you seeing out there? I'm seeing people desperate for simplicity. I'm I'm seeing everybody from the top down hoping that they could have a simple answer for a complex problem. That I attended a presentation yesterday by a statistician who said he'd ground through the basic numbers and the average human brain ha- is is confronted with 32 gigabytes of data a day. In different forms, different ways, everything from an Excel spreadsheet to uh, how soon your Uber driver is picking you up, that our brains are having to process far more data than they were built for. And there is a hunger for simplicity. And something that anyone can take from our discussion is I've tried to take a couple of complex difficult things. First off, give you some warning that they're headed our way. Second, I've tried to simplify what they are so you're not overwhelmed by, you know, I'm not going to pay any attention to this because it's just too much going on. And third, I've tried to give you a simple answer. And understand that everyone who, to all the people who are listening to this, everyone who is watching you and following you and a part of your life, 
they are hoping that you can simplify the complex, to clarify the things that are obscure, to to make it understandable. And that is the most important human skill going forward, to, to take complex things and make them understandable. Okay, so let's take, let's take that point right there, yep. and let's talk about the accounting profession. You've got very complex standards, complex code sections in the tax. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the Tax Simplification Act was, could have been called the Tax Accountant Lifetime Employment Act. <laughs> but how do you take the, I mean, you're sitting across, if, if, you know, when, it, when an accountant says depreciation, the person who's the non-accountant sits there and thinks, well, that's the value that I lose in my car when I drive it off the new car lot. And the accountant yes. goes, the accountant goes, no, 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 it's a systematic allocation of an asset over time. Yeah, rut row, exactly. So how, how do you, I mean, this is something I'm, I'm talk a lot about. How do you take complex information and make it simple? You do it with careful communication at a careful speed. Notice how I slowed down there. I, this was an important point, and so I altered how I was delivering it so that the person listening would go, oh, wait a minute, he slowed down. This must be important. If it was really important, I'd repeat it. I'd repeat it. It's a question of really getting good at communication skills and then really understanding both our subject, in this case, depreciation, and our audience, what language do they speak, then you have a hope. For instance, I am the first, I, I, my, I should explain, I am a licensed insurance agent. I work in an insurance agency as an HR person. I am the first person many people have met who has actually read all of the Affordable Care Act. And studied it for years. So and I can explain. I, I, I can call up a CFO and leave a voicemail that says, hey, if you call me back, I can explain the Affordable Care Act in 30 seconds. Click. And so then I get a call back from an unknown number and a voice on the other end says, go. And I give a basic 35,000 foot explanation in 25 seconds. And that earns me two minutes, and that earns me a cup of coffee, because by being able to, if you truly understand a subject, then you can explain it simply. If you don't understand a, a subject, all you've got are all the details that you can recite. Okay, so for the sake of the audience, go. <laughs> <laughs> so insurance works best if everybody is in the pool. Sharing. The Affordable Care Act does two basic things. It gives, through the exchanges, it gives existing insurance companies uh, 10 million new customers, most of whom are healthy. For that, the insurance companies have to take them all. No carve-outs, no pre-existing conditions. And it basically just affects 20% of the population without insurance. And that's the indigent poor with the expansion of Medicaid, the young invincibles who don't think they need it, 
and early retirees with a chronic condition too young for Medicare. Beep. Bingo. You got it, guys. It, uh, now, that then someone will say, well, yeah, but what about, okay, we can talk about that. But everything in the whole act fits in that umbrella. That you should. We, I will give people your contact information after <laughs> after this. Uh, but no, sure. Yeah, but you did it. With, I, I wasn't actually timing it, but it was. With, that was that was probably a little long. Yeah. I threw in a few flourishes because I'm with the famous Peter Margarita. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah. So get really expert. Then understand who you're talking to. Then become a good communicator in their language. That's exactly right. Um, and, and put things in context that everybody understands or, or the person would understand. Uh, I did a, yeah. uh, uh, I was doing a uh, presentation and one of the topics I had to talk about was consolidation of variable interest entities. Just <laughs> exactly. And I had 250 CPAs in the audience. Now, they should know this, but I know it's a different language. So I found a way to put it in context. I started off my presentation by asking everybody, how many in this room are married? And all these hands went up in the air. And then I said, how many of you have a mother-in-law? And all these hands are still up in the air. And I said, I want you to think of your mother-in-law as a variable interest entity. And your spouse wants their mother to move in, consolidate into your household. I went from completely unengaged <laughs> unengaged audience to oh, yeah. an, an audience that were There's, leaning oh, that forward. Was a, I, that was a visceral reaction, I am sure. Oh, it was great. And I know I have a pretty cool name, but every time I go back to Arizona, I'm the mother-in-law guy, which means oh, yeah. I was successful. But it's just People still remember that story. People still remember that story and how I put well, it in different contexts. You know, that's an interesting point. We all need to become better storytellers. A, I read a Psychology Today article, don't know how many years ago it was, that made the point that other you, you judge the intelligence of someone you've just met by their ability to select an interesting short story and tell it in an engaging way in a fairly quick period of time. That we, a conversation is nothing but a chain of short stories being lobbed back and forth like a tennis match. And we like people who tell stories in a concise, engaging, pleasant way with, you know what I mean? We, so if you were to circle back to where you asked me a few minutes ago, what does it take to get a, a better communications job done? I think I should have said storytelling. Storytelling is huge. The ability to tell stories versus pummel your audience with facts and, and data and, and numbers. If you can take that those facts, those data and number, and, and transform it into some type of story, the 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 likelihood of someone walking out retaining that knowledge is dramatically increased. Yep, but That's it's exactly right. But it's hard to do. It's 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 not yeah. it's it's not easy. But it's, hey, if it was easy, they'd have. It would be you know simple people would do it. Exactly. So, I, I I'm watching you. You look like you're you're looking for more rain clouds out there. That's right. No, I'm I'm thinking uh, I'm thinking we've hit the, all the major points I wanted to cover, 
can want to kind of summarize what the most important thing people could do. All right, then let's have it, my friend. It's to really focus on the information that you're good at and that you really need instead of all the data smog out there, that 32 gigabytes, Mm -hmm. that we really have to pay attention to the new ones coming into our organization because if we don't screen and hire them better, they are going to destroy the conventional structure that you've built of a high-performing culture. Um, So we've got to pay attention. We've got to raise our hiring standards and change how we do things. Um, And then finally, teach, screen for, teach, and and practice ourselves a higher ethical standard because um, there was an author, uh, John Brown. Ethics is learned by modeling, not by reading a bunch of books over the weekend. Well put. And there you go. I, I think another one that I, you know, the last part that we were talking about uh, from a takeaway is try to find ways to become better communicators. How do you take complex information oh, yeah. and have someone be, you know, when I talk to CPAs, accounting is a language of business. We have to become better translators. We have to translate our language into something that somebody else understands. Yeah. Um, that's exactly right. Where did you learn your communication skills from Peter? Uh, I grew up in a Greek household. I, I'm, I'm, I'm Greek American. I spent most of my young life and through college and even after college uh, in a restaurant in customer service. So I've been around a variety of different situations, um, and I also got the the gift of gab and and especially the humor uh, from my father, who was an entrepreneur who did not work in an office. So I, I but I'm always I'm constantly working on it. Uh, it's something that I, 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 some people think they can master. I don't, I just want to just continue to just get to get better. Yeah. Um, I'm always looking for new resources. I just released book. I met with the author yesterday, the book's title, one word, every data, E V E R Y every data. Uh, it's got a website, everydatabook.com. Um, I spent some time with John Johnson, PhD, president, CEO, blah, blah, blah. The guy that wrote it, he gets it. And his last chapter on how to communicate complex data is brilliant. So uh, a lot of the first chapters, everybody will already get. uh, But the last chapters on how to fix it are really well put together. Well, that, that's great because uh, I will be um, uh, buying his book uh, here in the very near future. And we'll, ha- we'll have the information about the book and the website uh, in the show notes and the transcripts for everybody to be able to find it. Actually, Peter, you should reach out to him and see if he'd uh, do a podcast. I was impressed with him. Uh, I, that's my friend. We think a lot alike in a lot of ways. And I was thinking the exact same thing that I'm going to yes. see if I can get him to be on uh, on my podcast. Great. Well, Carl, I've as always, I enjoy our conversations. I can't begin to thank you enough for parting your wisdom and taking sure. the time uh, to spend with me and my audience. And I know that they'll walk away with 
something today that they can begin to apply or begin to think about or begin to recognize, maybe to make their life a little bit easier around the around the house, around the office, uh, just make themselves... Hey, I want them to be sustainable. That's the new term I'm looking for. Not to survive, but to sustain. To sustain. So once again, thank you, my friend, and uh, we'll talk soon. Well, that's my friend Carl Oryx. I so enjoy the times we get to have a discussion on any topic. His knowledge, experiences, and his use of humor is priceless. The wisdom nuggets he left behind could fill a conference. I really enjoyed his conversation on current and future hiring practices. His thoughts on how to slow the revolving door and keep your high performers were spot on. Remember when Carl said, we need to raise our standards on hiring significantly and change what we hire for so that the high performers you have are pleased and impressed with the quality of people coming to work with them. They'll stick around if they're working in an environment they perceive that they can't get anywhere else. And if their manager appears to be listening to them, they will stay longer because they don't get that very often. You heard it. Listening to your high performers is one of the keys in retention. They want to be heard. It's just that simple. There are a number of other references to improvisation in this interview. Here are two more instances. When Carl started the interview and said that we need to pay attention to the storm clouds ahead, what I heard is that we need to be focused and not distracted. Remember when Carl was talking about the changing work styles and environment? Adaptability was the main theme, but remember, in order to adapt, you must possess respect, trust, support, listen, and focus. If you like this episode, please go to iTunes and write a review on my podcast. I'm always trying to learn, grow, and become better at everything I do, and your feedback is important to me. And remember to sign up for the Yes And Challenge on my website, petermargaritas.com. Thank you again for taking time to listen to this podcast. I really value every audience member. In episode six, I interview Steve Sachs, CEO and founder of Solutions to Results, LLC. Until next time, happy improvising. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.